Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. I am really excited to introduce you to our guest today, and here's why. I don't know about you, but have you ever read something and thought to yourself, yes, like this is, this is someone making sense of what has been stirring within me or thoughts that I've been having, and someone's finally putting it into words, the, the very thing I've had a difficult time expressing. Well, that's how I felt when I first encountered the work of Thomas J. Ord. He is a theologian, he is a philosopher, and a scholar of multidisciplinary studies. He's an award-winning author and editor of more than 25 books and an award-winning professor as well. Tom directs the Northwind Theological Seminary doctoral program in Open and Relational Theology and the Center for Open and Relational Theology. He is known for his contributions to research on love, open and relational theology, issues in science and religion, and freedom for transformation. He has been president of several scholarly societies and lectures at institutions, events, and churches around the globe. His newest book is titled Pluriform Love, which is what we will talk about today. And with that, Tom, welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. Thank you. I'm eager for this conversation, Michael. (laughs) Well, I ask all of our guests uh, right at the top, what would you like our listeners to know about you? Yeah, uh, you know, I'll start with a serious note and then go to something lighter. Uh, What I want people to most know about me is that I aim to live a life of love, that love Mm. matters most to me, that most days I spend a lot of my time thinking about how I might be a loving person given the various circumstances I'm a part of. So love is really important to me. That's probably the f- number one. Something lighter. Uh, we said in the opening uh, you, that I'm a photographer. I do a lot of nature photography, hike in Idaho and the Northwest. I get down to Colorado every once in a while, but not as much as I should. But uh, I do landscapes, uh, animals, um, and my work is published in a lot of different places, but it's more of a hobby than anything. Fascinating. Well, we're going to talk all about love during the podcast, but I'm curious, what got you into photography? Well, uh, in high school, I started doing the old-fashioned photography, darkroom, all that sort of stuff. I was, you know, and then doing things for the newspaper and for the uh, uh, yearbook. But then later in life, photography became a way for me to get out into nature to get time away from the hectic life that I live, time for contemplation, prayer, exercise. Um, It's really kind of a spiritual discipline for me. Not kind of. It is a spiritual discipline for me. I go out at least once a week, uh, drive out to places where there's nobody and look for beautiful things and think about deep thoughts. (laughs) At least that's my, (laughs) my goal. (laughs) Oh, there's something about, there's something about wild places that I, I resonate with you on that. I love getting out, being in the woods. Uh, this time of year, my outdoors is on the ski slopes, but, uh, most of the rest of the time it's hiking, camping, biking, just getting out is, uh, and of course you live like I do in a beautiful place that, uh, really affords us that opportunity. So yeah. how long have you been in Idaho? Uh, let's see. We moved here in 2002, so 20 years. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a, that's a season. Yeah, yeah. 
Wonderful. Well, I, I want to jump in to the book. And for those of you listening, it, it, as you listen to the introduction, you might think this, this individual is incredibly intelligent because I didn't understand half of what you said <laughs> with regard to even what it is that he does. But one of the things I want to say at the top, and I, I said this uh, before we hit record, is one of the things I've really appreciated uh, about your work is you are able to take really complex concepts and ideas and philosophies and make them very pedestrian. Uh, you can speak in a way where, where everybody understands. Um, and, and these are such important concepts to grasp that I love that you've given yourself to that and you've worked hard to do that. So um, I just want to start with the book's title. It's called Pluriform Love. Um, and I, I'm wondering, what do you mean when you use the word pluriform? And why is this an important idea to grasp? Well, in everyday use of the word love and in the history of theology and philosophy, that word love has a variety of meanings. And Christians have tended to want to distance themselves from some uses of the word love, or at least privilege some over others. Uh, and in doing so, they've made kind of stark claims like love is really self-sacrificial, or they'll say, only people who are Christians can love. Or they'll say, you know, God's love is loving you despite your sin and unconditionally, even though you're valueless or whatever. And often love gets painted into a corner, I think. And I wanted to say in this book that there are really good biblical reasons to think that love has many different forms. Yes, sometimes it's self-sacrificial. But other times you act for your own good. You love yourself in a healthy way. Love can be the love of friends, but also enemies and strangers. Uh, love is not only giving, but also receiving. So I wanted people to have a more expansive understanding of what love is while simultaneously providing a kind of framework so that love isn't just anything, you know. So love isn't, you know, rape or murder. I wouldn't want to say that's a loving act. But uh, have an expansive understanding of love and yet not so expansive as to make the word meaningless. Yeah. Yeah, so in some ways, uh, one of the experiences I've had when it comes to um, the, whether it's theology or talking about God or sermons or the way we think of the Bible is it kind of closes down conversation. So we're always mm -hmm. trying to get down to a singular idea, one way of thinking, which whoever's talking about it, typically they believe it's the right way of thinking. Right. Mm -hmm. And so in some ways what I'm hearing you say is like, no, let's open this up. Yeah. Because if, it, if it's, if we're talking about love, which is endless and eternal, how can we ever close it down? Would that be a, a, a proper way of thinking about it? I think so, yeah, yeah. Um, and so much of it is caught up in the kind of theological assumptions people bring to the Bible. So there's this whole tradition in Christianity that I'm sure you and many of your listeners are aware of that so emphasizes human sin, that thinks that we're just rotten sinners headed for hell and we can't do anything good, that those people can't imagine God would look at us and find something beautiful, excellent, worthwhile, lovely, something good in us to appreciate. But there's lots of biblical passages that talk about God's appreciation of us and finding us valuable. 
So um, some of the reasons why love has been too narrowed in Christian circles and beyond is these assumptions people bring to the conversation. Hmm. Hmm. So we've already been talking about love, um, but that's the second word in the title of the book is love. So if I were to ask the question, what is love? What is it that you'd say? All right, here's my definition. Um, this might sound technical to some people, but I think it's. I think if you think about it for a bit, it won't be too weird. It has three parts. First of all, to love is to act intentionally. Second part, in relational response to God and others. Third part, to promote overall well-being. Or another way to say it quickly is, Love acts intentionally in response to others to do what's good and helpful, to promote flourishing. Mm. So to use kind of more biblical language, love seeks abundant life. It seeks to be a blessing. It seeks shalom. Uh, it seeks uh, what's fundamentally good. Hmm. Now, one of the things you point out in the book is that the Bible gives no real precise definition of love, and you also comment how there's many writers and thinkers and scholars and theologians who also don't define love. And so you've done so in these three <laughs> parts that you just mentioned. Why is why is defining love important? Well, so much of the conversation gets confusing and people get lost in the weeds because the terms have so many different meanings. I mean, we know this in everyday life, right? Uh, when we listen to pop songs and they talk about love, often it's a romantic or sexual love. And that's good and appropriate. I'm all thumbs up on sex. I got no problems there. But, um, <laughs> you know, that's a little bit different than what most people mean when they say we ought to love our enemies. They usually don't mean we ought to have sex with them. So um, I think we ought to have this general definition that I just gave and then explore the various avenues or expressions or forms that love takes under this definition. And the Bible, I'd like to say the Bible is really clear on this, but you know, I read the Bible and it's not very <laughs> clear on this. Uh, you have a passage that says uh, God loves the world, for instance, and the Greek word there for love is agape. Uh, and another passage, it says that Demas sh loves the world, and that's a bad thing. And that same word agape is there. Um, so you've got attention in the scriptures itself. I think the majority of scriptures point to love as something like doing good or flourishing, abundant life, well-being. But um, I can't say that the Bible gives this totally consistent, systematic account of love. This reminds me of a question I'm often asked as a pastor who, when, when people are trying to understand the Bible, yeah. um, because for so many people, and I think a lot of our listeners would, would identify with this, um, we talk about our beliefs and they're just propositional statements. It's like mm -hmm. the bullet points. It's you go to a church's website, what we believe, and just boom, boom, boom. The, the Bible doesn't offer that to us. No. And... I understand the ancient Near Eastern realities in which the, the text was written and, and put together and our modern Western uh, world that we live in that's often is data and fact driven. But I'm wondering, I'd love to hear from you, why do you think the Bible in, in so many areas is 
we could say up for interpretation or unclear or not data-driven with bullet points. Yeah. Uh, what, what does that mean to you, or why do you think that might be the case? All right, here's the part of the interview where I say things that are controversial that some of your listeners <laughs> don't like, all right? <laughs> um, I think the writers of the Bible are inspired by God, but they don't always understand God. They don't always get God right. So I don't believe the Bible is totally without errors and all, always, etc. I think it represents really important information and relationships that people are undergoing with themselves and this God who I think really exists. But sometimes they just misunderstand what God's about. Um, so the Bible becomes for us an important source but something that requires our interpretation. And in fact, sometimes some parts deserve our criticism. So you'll see a passage that says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Does this mean God's in the hating business? You'll see a passage that says God wants them to commit genocide. Does that mean God really endorses mass killings? I don't think so. Another passage seems to rejoice about bashing babies' heads against the rocks. I don't think God's in the business of wanting that, causing that, or even permitting it, according to my theology. So we have to have some way to gauge Scripture on these sorts of issues. And I think there are a number of uh, strategies. One of them is to point to Jesus as giving us the clearest revelation of what God's love looks like. I endorse that strategy. Another is to say, you know, even if we didn't have Jesus, we have lots of Old Testament passages that portray God in a loving light, a steadfast love uh, of God. So we've got these different strategies. And I think when we come to try to figure out what love is about, including what scriptures mean, we need to look at the majority witness, what I would say is the preponderance of uh, claims about God in the Bible, and feel... Uh, not only free, but obligated to criticize some portions of the Bible. Mm. I'm trying to remember, and I, it's, I'm blanking on it right now, but the, the theologian who talked about when we come to those passages, for example, you mentioned genocide, where God says, uh, or the Bible says God says, show yeah. them no mercy. Yeah. And said, when we come to those passages that are troubling within us, it's an invitation for us to begin enjoying this conversation. I'm paraphrasing, but this conversation that's existed between humanity and God until we can come to a place where we can read the text in a manner that's worthy of God. Mm, yeah, yeah. And and that's a little bit of what I hear you saying of don't just take it at face value all the time, especially when it's in conflict with, I love the term majority witness yeah. uh, that you talk about. Um, well, you, you on, on, when it comes to this idea of love, and I'm wondering if there's a connection here, but you, you make the observation in the book that love is often neglected um, by biblical scholars in their work, and I guess it's a little bit con of conjecture for me to ask you why you think others do that, but why do you think uh, th that is the case? Well, actually, in the book, I, I really pick on one particular biblical scholar who's fairly influential, a guy named Richard Hayes. And he gives some reasons for why he doesn't think love should be the primary focal theme of his work. And one of the probably the most compelling is that he thinks that 
the word love is understood by much of popular culture as a kind of extreme relative uh, tolerance, uh, kind of uh, anything goes, you know, just love them as if, you know, it doesn't matter what they do or how they think. And um, I don't think the Bible thinks of love like that. But this particular biblical scholar doesn't take love as primary, I think, because he's worried about what that word has come to represent in contemporary culture. Um, that to me is like an easy criticism to make because I can just say, look, don't listen to contemporary culture. Listen to the majority biblical witness. I mean, you're a biblical scholar after all. Uh, hmm. But there's another kind of problem that's more common in Christian theologians. And it's harder for a lot of people to kind of sniff their way through or figure out. And that is um, people will say things like, oh, God is loving, but God is going to send some people to hell forever. And somehow that's a loving thing for God to do that. And I just say, no, it's not. Or they'll say, yes, God loves, but God loves the chosen, the elect, not the sinners. Or they'll say, um, God loves everybody, but God allowed her to be raped. God permitted him to be tortured. As if somehow allowing rape and permitting torture is a good and loving thing from God's perspective. So... A lot of people, including most theologians, give lip service to the idea that God is loving. But when the rubber meets the road on evil, hell, God's election, their use of that word love does not match what the way we usually think of love is doing good. And so part of this book is pointing out what I think are real problems within much of Christian theology on understanding what God's love is really all about. Hmm. So you said at the very beginning, when I asked what your listeners know about you, you talked about your commitment to love, in, to act in love. Um, in the book, too, I think it's in the preface, you said that your wife said to you, you're, you're really writing another book on love? And so I'm curious, by contrast, you talk about some scholars who seem to gloss over it, but you've given your, so much of your effort and really your life to focusing on it. And why is that? Why have you been led to and compelled to do that? Well, there's a number of reasons, you know, I could just say, well, because I think the biblical writers do, but um, I think telling a little bit about my story might help explain things. I grew up in a Christian home and going to church and, you know, following Jesus was a real priority. I gave my life to Jesus many times as a kid. Um, I became like an avid evangelist, going door to door, joined Campus Crusade for Christ, witnessed to people on airplanes and on the beach, uh, you know, one of those annoying people. Uh, <laughs> and then about the end of my college career, I started reading some really smart atheists, agnostics, and people from other religious traditions. And for the sake of intellectual honesty, I had to admit I didn't really have good grounds to believe that there was a God, or at least the grounds mm. I had weren't very convincing to me anymore. And I remember coming to pick up my fiance, who's now my wife, who mocks me for writing so many books on love. <laughs> <laughs> 
uh, coming to pick her up, her getting in the car as we're on our way to dinner and me turning to her and saying, I just can't believe in God anymore. Um, now, for me, this turn away from belief in God, it wasn't because, like, I had been abused by a pastor or that, you know, I wanted to sow my wild oats or anything like that. It was intellectual reasons. And I think partly because they were intellectual reasons, I kept out that quest. And I eventually came back to think it was more plausible than not that there is a God. I'm not certain then. I wasn't certain then. I'm not certain now. But I think there's good reasons to think there's a God. And at least initially, there were two major ones. One, this search for meaning. I didn't think life could have ultimate meaning if there wasn't an ultimate source of meaning that most people call God. Mm. And secondly, I had to admit, I felt like I had these intuitions that I ought to be a loving person and that other people ought to be loving and that in some sense, love was the answer. (laughs) And... I couldn't make good sense of those deep intuitions if there wasn't a source for them that, again, most people call God. And so for me, it was really a return to belief in God that was centered on love. And then my life since then is kind of trying to work out all the implications of what that means. Hmm. Well, you, you, you just were talking about God uh, belief in God in a recognition of love leading you to that. Uh, it, the writer of 1 John uh, says, I'm sure most of us have heard this in one way or another, that God is love. Um, one of my favorite quotes is from the 13th century mystic Marguerite Poret, who wrote in reflection of the 1 John that she says, I am God, says love, for love is God and God is love. And so I, I bring that up because I'm curious and I'd love to even you hear, or hear you unpack it more in your own journey. Um, how does this view of love that you write about, how can it impact our understanding of the divine who is love? Or in your case, how has it led you more deeply into a relationship uh, with, with God? Yeah. I interpret that phrase, God is love, to mean something like, God always loves because it's God's nature to love. Everything God does, God does out of a heart or nature or an essence of love. Um, Now, I don't think that when people love, that's actually God turning them into robots and forcing them to do something that's loving, as if they have no agency, no responsiveness that, you know, Michael, when you love your kids, it's not like temporarily God takes over your body and you can't do anything other than do good to them because God is forcing you. I'm against that. Later on in that passage in John, that's after it says God is love, it says, we love because God first loved us. So I think God is the power of love, the motivator of love. God inspires love, but we really have to respond to that empowering, that inspiration. And so we have a real role as agents to play in response to the God who is love. And that to me, if we get that right, 
we overcome all kinds of really difficult questions about predestination and God controlling and whether or not we can do anything good totally on our own. If we always begin with this God of love acts first and empowers, inspires, and motivates us to love, and then we really have the choice to respond. We can ignore that that call to love or we can act on it. So many of the questions most people have about God and creation just kind of fall into line if we get that straight. And in your, your as I'm hearing you, I'd I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about more about that because this this is this participatory relationship that we have with God, right? Of we have we have a responsibility. Uh, maybe those of you listening, you, it might, you might think to yourself, we have a mission, we have a purpose, there's a reason to in, for our existence and for our existence. But this is the, the relational theology side of it. And I told you, um, someone came to me uh, um, after one of my sermons and said, you're a relational theologian. <laughs> I didn't even I wasn't even familiar with the term yet, but then they uh, began speaking about you, and lo and behold, here we are a few months later. Um, but I'd love to I'd love for you to unpack that a little bit because I do think it's such a beautiful um, concept and idea of what God wants to do with us and through us uh, in our context. Yeah, there's so many directions I can go to answer that. I could do that scientifically. <laughs> I can do that in terms of theological traditions. But I think what I'm going to do is use a dancing analogy. Suppose I'm back at my high school, my high school dance, in which many dances began with most of the guys on one side of the floor and most of the girls <laughs> on the other side of the floor. Now, imagine that life is a dance floor in which God is on one side and we're on the other. Some theologies, I won't name names, but they're pretty famous, says God comes all the way across that dance floor and says, Michael, you must dance with me. And you have no choice. God's grace is irresistible. And you get out there and you are just (laughs) going to do whatever God wants because you're basically a robot out on the dance floor. Another tradition within Christianity, much less prominent, but it's still there, has God on one side of the dance floor, you on the other, and God says, you know, if Michael takes a step toward me, I'll take a step toward Michael. If Michael tries really hard, pulls himself up by his bootstraps, well, then I'll take another step. And basically, Michael's got to earn the opportunity for a dance with God. That kind of scenario puts all this responsibility on our shoulders and doesn't make a lot of sense if God is truly loving. This third model is the one I advocate. It says God comes all the way across the dance floor and then puts out the hand and says, may I have this dance? And we have real free choice on whether or not we're going to dance with God. And if we say yes, it's not like our choice disappears. We still have choice as we dance with God in the dance floor of life, along with other people. And this is where my analogy gets kind of weird, but God can dance with lots of people (laughs) all at once, including us. And when we're on the dance floor with God, we still have free choices. We can cooperate well with God, and the dance can be beautiful. We can get out there and not cooperate well, and it's basically a mosh pit. Whatever happens, we continue to have free choice, and God continues to love and offer no matter what we do. It's up to us to cooperate 
with God and with others on the dance floor to make this a dance that not only benefits us and benefits others, but even can benefit God. Hmm. I love that analogy. Oh, thanks. I don't think it got weird either with the Greek <laughs> dance. <laughs> so what was that years ago? The Macarena where everyone danced together. There so you go. Works, yeah. Right? I just dated myself by dropping the Macarena. I'm sure there's some people listening like, I don't even know what that is, but there we are. But <laughs> um, so Imagine all those TikTok van- dances that are on right now where people are doing everything in sync, you know. It's the same kind oh, of yeah. thing. There you go. There it is. <laughs> you're, you're more current than I am, apparently. Uh, I haven't gone down the TikTok uh, rabbit hole just yet. Uh, I, hear, I hear it's pretty powerful, though. It's a vortex. So. Yeah. This, I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend going down that hole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I stay away from it, at least for now. But um, you, one of the things I enjoyed about the book is you spend on time, or you spend time unpacking love as it's found in the Gospels. And so I'd love to hear you um, share just about what the lo- what is the love of God um, and, and how do you understand the love of God that we see on display in and through Jesus? Yeah, um, that word agape that a lot of Christians know occurs about 330 times in the New Testament in various forms. Another word that lo- fewer people know, a word phileia, occurs about 30 times. Um, The meaning of these words aren't uh, exactly clear in the Bible. They're used in a lot of different ways. God's love is multifarious, pluriform as well. Um, So God not only loves us in terms of uh, loving us despite our sin, in terms of forgiving us, but God also finds great value in us. And probably the form of love I like to emphasize the most, because I think it's the least emphasized in the discussion, is the form of love of friendship or of cooperation or collaboration. That is, God not only loves us despite our sin, God not only loves us because of our value in God, but God loves us and wants to work alongside us in the world. I don't really emphasize the next idea that I'm going to tell you in this book, but I have in others, and it's pretty radical. So hold on to your seats here for a second. I think, (laughs) I think God simply can't get everything done. God wants to see done unless we cooperate. I don't think God has the kind of abilities to just snap a finger to fix everything, even if we've refused to be a part of the process. God actually needs you and me for love to win. That's how much I think that phileo or that alongside of love uh, matters in the Christian life. Do you think there's a huge difference? Uh, a lot's been made of, of the, the words in Greek about love, uh, specifically phileo and, and agape. Do you, as you read them, see a huge difference in, in the way that they're used? in the Gospels and in the New Testament, or is there, are they similar, uh, more similar than some people will give them credit for? Tons of similarity. In almost every instance in which phileia is used, the word agape is used to mean virtually the same thing. And agape means lots of different things. It has many different forms, which again, gets back to the, the pluriform. So agape is not only loving enemies, but it's loving friends. Agape is not only loving neighbor, but it's loving oneself. 
Agape is not only loving strangers, but it's also loving those in the church. So that word agape means a ton of different things in the Bible. I make the argument in this book that in the 90 plus percent of instances, to love with agape is to do something that's good to promote flourishing well-being. But the particular ways we do good, those are vastly different in the Bible and in our everyday life. And that's the pluriform love right there. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. That's the point of yeah. my book. Yep. Yeah. It's interesting when you talk about God needs us, and you just said, you know, this might be a uh, radical idea. Yeah. It's in. I just spoke about this, I can't remember when, that you read the creation poem in Genesis 1, and by all accounts, by the end of that, you're like, I think God's pretty much got this taken care of. Until you get to Genesis 2, when he says to the human, hey, why don't you work the place and take care of it? Like, you put, I want your fingerprints on it. You, you think about Mary. God needed right. someone to say yes. And it, it, that theme runs through Scripture so clearly. And it goes back to what you said at the beginning, is when we are just these dirty, rotten, filthy, stinking sinners— <laughs> how could we possibly do anything with or for God? Right. God's done it all for us. And uh, I think this is why Richard Rohr says, um, Jesus never said, worship me. He said, follow me. Mm, but I we've chosen to one. worship him because it's easier. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yeah. yeah. Well, a lot of what Richard Rohr says is pretty good in yeah, my, in my yeah, opinion. Yeah, he's a good guy. Yeah. Where, where, when you think about this idea of participation with God— and um, what does this look like in, like in your life? Like you talked earlier about love or in the life of someone else, because this can feel like a huge concept. Yeah. And so often we're such a progress up into the right achievement-oriented culture that when we hear these things, I can almost hear people going, yeah, but what could I actually do? Yeah. And yeah. so what would you say to someone who feels like this is so far beyond them to ever dance with God on the dance floor of life, as you said? I would say you're already dancing with God. The question is, are you dancing well with God? The question is, moment by moment, are you doing the best you can do given your circumstances? Most of life doesn't involve heroic acts of sacrificial love where you're picking someone off the street who's, you know, I don't know, with AIDS or some, you know, huge kind of thing. Most of life is just loving by doing podcast interviews with people named Michael. You don't really know very well, but you think, you know what? <laughs> I'm going to do this podcast because it'll be a good conversation and it might help some people. won't probably change the world radically, but for some people, it might make a really positive difference. It means uh, earlier today, somebody called or sent me an email and said, the local um, conservation society is doing a fundraiser. Can we have some of your photos to give away? Sure. It doesn't cost me a whole lot to do that, and I can ho hopefully do a little bit of good. It means what I did the half hour before I came on here, my wife sent me a text and said, I got prescriptions that need to be picked up. Would you go do that? It wasn't a heroic thing. I drove down to Walmart, picked up the prescriptions, I think I was actually following God's call in that moment. I was dancing with God. So I, I, I want to say there are points in time in which we're called to do something heroic. But 99% per, 
1% of life. It's doing the little things to make the world a better place, to advance the kingdom of God, whatever language you prefer. It's doing the little things, dancing with God and others to uh, see creation, others, and our own lives flourish. Hmm. What, what place then do, does, do feelings have in this? Yeah. So, I mean, we, we, you, you touched on it earlier, and you, you touch on it too in the book, that whether it's pop songs or movies, there is this distorted idea of, of love. Um, but there's also that reality of there are the moments of the butterflies, the fluttering, the yep. attraction um, in healthy ways. So w- what role do you, do you see that playing in, in feelings, this idea of— Feelings are super important. Contrary to what a lot of people have said, feelings really matter. I remember coming to college as an 18-year-old, and I had a class in theology, and the professor got up there and said, feelings have nothing to do with theology. (laughs) I think he was saying that because many of us had grown up in church traditions in which, you know, if you had a really good feeling, that meant God was there. But if you didn't feel good, well, God had abandoned you. And he was trying to say, you know, you can't always trust your feelings. And that's, I think, is true. But um, feelings are an important part of everyday life, and um, they can be powerful motivators for us to do what's good and loving. Now, sometimes we have to act for what's good and loving despite our feelings. Sometimes people do harm to me. Uh, Just yesterday, I was pulling out an intersection, and this car you know, went right in front of me and flipped me off as if it was my fault that we almost got in a wreck. And I don't think it was my fault at all. Now, how am I going to react to that? Well, in that situation, my feelings are like, oh, I'm going to flip him off or I'm going to ram him or, you know, I've got negative feelings toward this person. And I have to say, hold on a second. What does well-being require in this moment? It means Mm -hmm. acting despite the lack of warm feelings toward this person. So I'm not saying we always operate on feelings and just do whatever they, they should do. But sometimes feelings are powerful motivators. That's what Jesus, I think, was pointing to when he told the story of the Good Samaritan. In that particular story, the Samaritan comes near the victim on the side of the road and has compassion. Compassion is a feeling word. And Mm. I think we need to be we, we shouldn't reject feelings altogether when we think about love. But neither should we think it's all about feelings and nothing else. Hmm. That's that's really helpful. Hmm, thanks. What um, it, 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 as people are hearing this, as I'm hearing this, um, what how how can this th- way of thinking, uh, this viewpoint of love, how ca- how can it change the way we relate to God? And maybe I should ask, how has it changed the way you've related to God and the way you relate to others as well? Yeah. Well, those are huge questions. Let me let me just give some <laughs> illustrations. All right. Um, I remember starting to study theology when I was younger, and kind of having the view of God, which I think is pretty popular today, especially in amongst theologians, that God is somehow unaffected, aloof. So God's like the Force in Star Wars. You know, it's there. But, you know, you don't really make a difference to it. It just has to be there for, it's kind of like the glue of the universe. It has to be there for things to work, but it's not personal or relational. 
And I remember being in church and we were singing worship songs and I'm from a low church tradition, which is, you know, we like to rock and roll. We like to, you know, be expressive. Um, and I remember thinking, you know, is worship just really a reminder to ourselves of certain divine attributes, <laughs> you know, like God's powerful, God's loving, God's glorious, God's beautiful, whatever. Um, are they just our attempts to keep life in focus and believe God has these characteristics? If so, okay, but maybe there's something more to this. Maybe the God who I think exists can actually be influenced or affected by what I do. Maybe God's own divine experience can be enhanced by my worship. Hmm. Maybe my heartfelt devotion, emotion, praise actually makes God happy. God gets jacked up when I worship. That, hmm. I tell you, that motivates me to worship. You know, it's more than just reminding me of certain divine attributes, which sometimes the songs I hear I don't actually agree with. So it's, you know, it's not any fun. <laughs> <laughs> it's more than that. I actually can affect the God of the universe in my praise. And it's not just in praise and worship. I think, again, this conversation we're having right now, insofar as it's good and loving, God is pleased with that. And we're promoting or enhancing or positively affirming God's moment-by-moment -moment experience. That means, to put it more generally, what we do makes a difference to God. We matter. Our lives are mm. ultimately significant. We have reason and purpose. And man, that's super important to me and I think most humans on this planet. That then affects the way I think about how I'm going to act toward my friends and the people who flip me off when I go through intersections and et cetera, because I think God is not only affected when I'm sort of consciously trying to praise God directly, but because God is omnipresent, God is affected by how I act toward creation, toward my dog, toward uh, other people, toward the planet, et cetera. So it's pretty wide reaching when we start thinking about the implications of what this love means. Yeah. I really, I really, 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 really like that. Cool. Yeah. I mean, not that you're trying to appeal to me alone. But <laughs> it reminds me the, um, it's the Shalomim, the peace offering. That was that God uh, instructed to the people of Israel, which was just, hey, I want you to know that I want to hang out with you. This yeah. is a loose translation of the Hebrew. <laughs> and But it's the whole thing is this will be a pleasing aroma. Mm -hmm. What you do pleases me. I have joy. And I have joy because you're showing up just to spend time with me. Yeah. Um, what a beautiful concept. That's at the heart oh. of relational thinking. I think it's at the heart of the gospel. But our listeners may be surprised to hear it's not what the most influential Christian theologians in history have thought. The big-time yeah. heavy hitters like John Calvin, Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, Martin Luther, all of them thought, well, God isn't affected by anything we do. And I just think they're dead wrong. Now, was that Aristotle, the unmoved mover? Yes, Aristotle, yeah. yeah, before all those folks. But they they were influenced by Aristotle and Plato, for sure. Yeah, 
this God who's out there somewhere sitting on a throne, big white beard. Obviously, he's white, too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Tom, I think we could, I think we could talk for a long time. Yeah. Um, so with that said, next time you're in Colorado to take photographs, uh, I'll, hike, I'll just hike next to you. We can, we can continue to unpack this. But um, where can our listeners find you online? Uh, you know, I have a personal website that's my full name, Thomas J J A Y Ord O O R D dot com. Or they could go to the Center for Open and Relational Theology. The website there is the letter C, the number four, the letters O R T dot com. And, you know, drop me an email. I'm pretty accessible on Twitter and Facebook. Um, so I enjoy conversations and trying to help people. Perfect. And for those of you listening, I'll put those links uh, in the notes of today's episode. Uh, we've been talking about your book. Um, when, is, when is that available and where is it available? Uh, it's called Pluriform Love. It'll be available the end of February. It should come out in paperback, hardback, ebook, and audiobook all at the same time, right? The end of February. And you can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your favorite online um, dispenser it may be in a few you know physical bookstores but less likely there than getting it online somewhere perfect well my friend thank you so much for being here on the changing faith podcast i, I really appreciate uh, all of your work thanks for the opportunity i've really enjoyed this michael thanks for the conversation yeah for sure and uh, thank all of you once again for joining us uh for another episode of the changing faith podcast one of the gifts of Tom's work, as I said at the beginning, and you just experienced it, is he has a, a real tremendous theological and philosophical depth, but he writes and speaks in a way that most everyone, including me, can grasp what he is saying. So I really do encourage you to check out not only his newest book, but his books and his blog that's at his website. And I promise you will be challenged, you'll be invited into the beauty and expansiveness of God's love. So thank you again to Tom for being with us. Thank you for joining with us for another episode of the Changing Faith Podcast. That is it for today, my friends. So until next time, as always, much love and peace be with you. Peace.